Now, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Revelation as we continue the letters to the churches, this one, I think, being peculiarly appropriate to our communion service today. Last week, the letter to Sardis, which was the hardest hitting of the loving letters of Jesus to a church in the Roman province of Asia. This letter today filled with encouragement. Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, and now we come to your word. And we humble ourselves underneath its authority and pour contempt on all our pride, that overweening pride that is in every heart by nature. But help us to see the cross, help us to see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to understand and realize that we have nothing but what has been given. And as you have appointed the means of grace whereby we are to grow and prosper in the faith as believers, You also have said in your word that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And there may be those today in this service that do not know the Lord Jesus, young or old. And we pray, Father, that you will open their hearts, that they may see their desperate need of the Savior, and that without delay, you would enable them, Father, to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Standing together, Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God... What is striking about this letter, just as the letter to Smyrna, is that here the Lord only commends. There is only encouragement. There is no criticism of this church. 
And the letter is filled with encouragement to the people of God who are struggling to be faithful. So let's get right to the text and receive that encouragement for ourselves. The first thing we want to see as we come to this letter is Christ's knowledge of this church. Once again, he says, I know. And what a comfort it is to know that the Lord knows as the omniscient one. Christ's knowledge of this church then. What does he know about this church? Well, first of all, that the church in Philadelphia was weak. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Very probably the church in Philadelphia was numerically small, composed of classes with little influence as the world counts influence. The New Testament addresses no one class, aims at no one race or sphere of influence. Indeed, the Lord has chosen through the comparison with what the world thinks is great, those things that are not, in order that he might confound the world and show forth his glory. Might it not be an offense to the modern world to be described as weak? And yet the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that it's through his very weakness that God makes his power known. So these people know that they were dependent on the Lord, and he knows their weakness. But also, the Lord Jesus knows that the church in Philadelphia was opposed severely. So in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They are opposed by the synagogue of Satan, just as was the church in Smyrna, you recall. Christ's church will always face opposition. In chapter 2, verse 10, the letter to Smyrna, we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so it is promised to the church that the church will know opposition in this world. Who knows what opposition we will face within the next years, even in our own country. The late Charles Colson said, before the Southern Baptist Convention in 2009, just before he died, that pastors will face prosecution under hate crime laws for saying that same-sex unions are sinful. Well, we certainly seem to be moving in that direction. At any rate, we will face opposition, and this church faced it. Coming to Christ means a complete break with our past, but Christ does not spare the church or individual Christians, usually from persecution or suffering, but he promises to uphold us in the midst of the suffering. The church will face opposition by the world until Jesus returns, and this opposition will always relate to the church's love for Christ and love for the truth. And this means that the weak little church in Philadelphia is spiritually very strong. They confess Christ despite the hatred of the world. But also the Lord Jesus knows this about the church, that the church was faithful. Notice again in the second portion of verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the church may be weak as the world counts strength, but they have no little strength spiritually. 
We are to encourage one another in that, by the way, and be encouraged by what our Lord did for us. You will remember in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and following, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this church keeps his word, confesses his name, no easy thing in the midst of a pagan culture. And so this church was probably very small, unnoticed by the world as far as those things that might commend her. Probably they were few in number. The world would not consider her great in any way. She has little influence in her community. She has few resources, but weak though she is, This church is strong in grace. When you attended, you would hear the preaching of the cross. You would hear the preaching of the resurrected Lord. Weak, but does not the Lord show his strength in our weakness? And if one came to know this weak little band of Christians in Philadelphia, they would come to see the church in a different light and they would say, what strength, what faithfulness, what courage, what love for Christ, his truth and one another. Remarkable little band, this church in Philadelphia. Now it is a very good thing that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God daily and that we recognize that we are of little strength. All around us are things that we cannot change that we might long to change. We long for people to know the Lord who have not come to know Him, for society to experience the gospel, and it has not, for individual situations to change, and they do not. But the promise that comes to us from His Word is that the Lord is working out His strong purpose in the midst of our weakness in this fallen world. Now, I would say that this church is humbled, and encouragement comes from the Lord to humble hearts. And so again, I ask you, do you humble yourself before the Lord? Is this something that is simply part of who you are, that you consciously humble yourself before the Lord? If so, it is to the humble that the Lord brings the encouragements of his gospel. So the second thing we see in the text, Christ's encouragements to this church, his encouragements to this church. And the first encouragement is that Christ holds the key of David. Notice verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In chapter 1, verse 18, Christ's description of his own glory and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so Christ holds the key of David. Now, if you were listening carefully to what Pastor MacDonald read to us from Isaiah 22 you will see that this is almost a direct quotation from Isaiah 22, the key of David prophecy. There, Eliakim, 
succeeds unfaithful Shivna as the royal treasurer. And Eliakim will be given the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. His place of dignity is incontestable. What the prophecy is telling us here in Isaiah is that Christ is the surpassing fulfillment of that word in Isaiah 22. Christ holds the key of death and of Hades. Christ opens the door and no one can shut and shuts and no one can open. Christ is head over all things for the church, Ephesians 1.22. Christ is authoritative over all things, Matthew 28. Christ is faithful over God's household, Hebrews 6. Jesus holds the key. And what is the key? Supervision over the king's business. What Eliakim could not do in the ultimate sense, Christ the Lord does. He holds the key and he administers God's sovereign purpose in this world as the mediator to save his own. So think on Christ's reliability and strength, little weak Philadelphia. Think upon the fact that he holds the key, that he opens and he shuts, and no man can do contrary wise. Think on Christ's reliability. Verse 7, he is the Holy One and the True. The Holy One. This is Isaiah's favorite name for Jehovah. It is applied to Christ because he is Jehovah. He is the Holy One. And we should keep a sharp contrast between idolatry and the nature of God. The one who is holy and true, who has no surprise as he looks upon us in trial, who points to his own character for our encouragement. Is there someone here that is deeply dissatisfied with the worship of idols? Then look by faith to Christ who is the Holy One. Is there someone here and you are so dissatisfied with living the lie? Live to the one who is true and the one who is faithful. Christ, the true Eliakim. And that is why there is an open door, which is the next encouragement we find in the text. There's an open door. Christ sets before the church an open door. Notice verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So he holds the key. And Christ says, I've opened the door with that key. There's an open door. Now, what does this mean? Well, most commentators will tell you that the open door is the door of evangelism. And the reason that they say that is because if you look at the book of Acts and especially Paul's epistles, the metaphor that Paul uses for an open door is the metaphor for evangelism. Uh, But not here, I'm convinced. I am convinced that's not what it means here. To understand what it means here, we need to remember, first of all, the pressure of this church, the hatred of others, Satan's opposition. The point here is that though Satan opposes, no one can keep God's own from the kingdom. The synagogue of Satan cannot shut them out. And in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, if you'll turn your page, we read, And after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And so the very way in which he uses the idea of a doorway in the very next chapter is an entryway into heaven, approach to heaven. In other words, people of God, the door that has been opened for us is the door to heaven and no opposition 
and no persecution will be able to shut that door that Christ has opened for his people. Eliakim holds the key and no one can keep you out of the heavenly city and no one can keep his people from entering into communion with him in heaven. But then there's another encouragement that is given to the people of God. Christ guarantees victory over their opponents. And so we read in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now in Isaiah 60, 14, Isaiah 45, 14, and other places in the book of Isaiah and in the Old Testament, we have the Gentile world coming and bowing before the Jew. But now we have what must have been a multi-ethnic church, converted Jews and Gentiles all together in this one church, and that church represents the new Israel. And those Jews who are opposing them in the community will one day come and bow before the people of God. They will bow at your feet. The passages that speak of the Gentiles bowing now are applied to the Jews who oppose the new Israel, the true people of God. One day you will participate in the... Paul says... Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And so the world will bow at the feet of Jesus and bow before your feet as well. That's the encouragement he gives to these people. You don't see it now. You walk by faith and not by sight, but that's the promise. That's the encouragement that is given by Jesus to this weak little church in Philadelphia. They may be in rags now, but they're kings and princes and princesses and so are you in the midst of this fallen world. No matter how opposed you may be, you belong to the king. The key is in Jesus' hands. The door is opened. Communion with God is assured. Entry into heaven is certain. And one of these days, those who oppose Christ and his church will bow before your feet. Christ then, to sum up, holds the key of David, and this means that he supervises over the king's business. He is altogether reliable. He will not, he cannot fail. He has set before us an open door, and even Satan himself cannot open what he shuts or shut what he opens. Our entrance into God's kingdom is open and no one can shut. That entrance into God's presence is open and no one can shut, so that you may go as believers anytime into the court of heaven through your great high priest, Jesus Christ. Encouragement indeed, I think. Am I the only one that's encouraged by this? Are you not, as God's people, encouraged by these truths? Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not only to Philadelphia, but to the churches? This church this morning, which leads us to the third thing. Christ promises to this church. Christ promises to this church. Given to those who overcome, for the expectation is that those who suffer with Christ will reign with him. That's always the pattern. Humility, utter humility, the promise of reigning with Christ after the pattern of his own sacrifice and exaltation. The first promise I want to mention, I've just mentioned it, but I can't help it. I'll mention it again. It's really a promise, not only an encouragement. 
Christ's enemies will all bow before God's people. Verse 9, the synagogue of the Jews that bitterly hated God and his people who persecuted the church will bow and it will be fulfilled in two ways. Conversion, as men and women and children very humbly come and say, I am so, so deeply sorry that I did not love Jesus and I hated you. And the other way, when Jesus comes again and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Promise number two, the church will be kept in the hour of trial. Notice verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The church keeps his word of patient endurance. Jesus usually does not take us out of trials and tribulations, but promises to be with us in them. The world hates Christ, but there is a final trial that is going to come over the whole earth from which we will be exempt. A final universal trial will come upon the whole earth, and that is the judgment to come. The church, true believers, whose faith shows in their faithfulness and persecution on that day will be seen to be the Lord's and will experience no condemnation because the wrath of God has already been poured out upon Jesus in our place. Christ has died for you. And so the promise is that in the final hour of trial, the church, the true church, real believers will be safe. In perplexities and trials and apparent contradictions and things that are hard and that we don't understand, there's a moral purpose in God's world. Jesus Christ, who holds the key, rules and reigns over it, and though obscured by trial, God himself leads us through it to ultimate safety. I think it would be a good thing if we turned to Romans 8 and just remembered another passage that promises what is promised here. In Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 28, just hear the words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we're being told in Revelation chapter 3. In perplexities, He is with us. He will take us home all the way to the end. The grace that has come to you from the cross will deliver you from the final trial that is coming upon the earth, that great day of condemnation. Your final judgment for sin has already taken place in the cross of Jesus Christ. So you may look ahead to the coming of Christ with resolve. Philip Hughes made this statement. There is no suggestion here that God's work of grace may fail in the end and come to nothing. Far from it. The emphasis is on the need for us to be sincere and unhypocritical in our profession of faith and to be undaunted as we persevere in the midst of trials and afflictions and to be and to be this there is unceasing need for the strengthening and edifying grace of God indeed yes that is what we need every day every moment until the end and that's why he's given us this word to strengthen us in our walk through troubles and tribulations these future promises as we look to the future and we have his promise and we know what is coming and we know the blessing that awaits us, these future promises galvanize the church for faithful living now. Knowing this is what gave strength to the martyrs in the Reformation, the ability to go to the, to the scaffold or, or to the flames and to joyfully give their lives for Jesus because they were fully assured that the key and the hand of the true Eliakim had opened the door and no one could shut. Do you believe that? Promise number three, the church will be stable in the midst of her earthly trials and God will commune with us as people. Notice how he puts it in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So he uses temple imagery and he says, I'm making of you a pillar in that temple. Now there was an earthquake in AD 17 and it ruined the city of Sardis, almost completely ruined Philadelphia. Everyone moved out of the inner city. But by the time this book is written in the 90s, Everything is repaired, and it's a thriving city once again. Perhaps the Lord Jesus is bringing to mind those great temples that were shaken and the pillars fell. Well, he says, I'm going to make you a pillar, and you're not going to fall. You're a part of the temple that I'm building. So in the midst of genuine trials, and the New Testament church faced just what we are, They faced opposition, persecution, fornication, litigation, idolatry, marriage issues. In the midst of all the opposition to paganism, God is raising up a spiritual temple of living stones out of which he promises to make conquerors, pillars, stable, unshakable, immovable. And yes, at the end, but it starts now. He will never... Go out of it, the text says. That is to say, you will be a permanent part of the temple immovable that I am building. 
And when he uses the symbol of a temple, what does he mean by that? Well, the scriptures teach, you are the temple of the living God. We, God's people, as individuals and as a group here, we are the temple. We are indwelt by him. When he calls us a temple, he simply means I come, I live in you, I dwell in you, I commune with you. The living God, the Holy One of Israel, has condescended to come to us in his Son and through the Holy Spirit and actually to save us and to commune with you and to dwell in you. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We'll read verse 12 again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. You are God's temple. Believers are built up as living stones, a spiritual temple with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. You are a part of that temple, and God dwells with his people, and God fellowships with you. Now, let me ask you something. Do you know what it means to commune with God? Do you actually know what it means to fellowship with him? Do you know that believers in Jesus are intimates with the holy God of the universe? So I might say to someone, well, we love the Bible. Yes, but do you love the God of the Bible? Is your heart really turned toward God? Are you one in whose heart the Spirit dwells so that you are seeking God, heart and soul, and you love Him with all of your being. Turn to Isaiah 57. Let me remind you of something very, very important. Isaiah 57. The Lord says this to His people. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In whom does God dwell? With whom does he fellowship? Not with the proud, not with the arrogant, but with the lowly, contrite heart. And if if the gospel that you hear week in and week out is not more and more softening your heart, it is more and more hardening your heart. Somebody here needs to stop playing games. You look great on the outside, but your heart is far from God. You need to know what it means to trust in Christ and to actually fellowship, commune with the living God. Promise number four. The church has God's stamp of ownership. Verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from from God out of heaven and my own new name. So God's own name. Now if you 
Keep your finger here and turn to the end of the book, chapter 22. As the new Jerusalem is being described, where God's people will dwell eternally. He says, 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And listen to this, his name will be on their foreheads. Now back here in chapter 3, we are told his name will be upon you. Yes, in the future, the name of my God, which means divine ownership. You are precious to God. You are secure in his ownership. So there's the name of true citizenship, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God. You are journeying to a city whose builder and maker is God, the true citizenship that you have in heaven. And in the end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and God's purpose will have been fulfilled. And we will dwell in that city with our God forever. And you will have a name as a member of the new Jerusalem, the society of God's elect the assembly that is there worshiping the Lamb forever. And another perspective that is given in verse 12 is Jesus says, my own new name will be given to you. Imagine that. The name of the exalted triumphant Lord, all the world is worshiping his name. They have bowed the knee before him. And he says, look, you see my saints, they bear my name. My new name of triumph they bear. So there's a threefold name that is mentioned here. God's own name is put upon you. The name of our true citizenship and the Redeemer's name, a threefold name expressing who you are and sealing forever the security of everyone who knows Jesus Christ. If his name is on you, Who can remove you? And in his promises, he draws nigh to his people in this passage. And when his powerful presence begins to be known among us and within us, then many things become ugly to us that once were pretty to us. And how wonderful when his manifest special presence draws near And he applies his promises to his people. Well, I'm not done. There's a fourth thing here. I want to single out maybe three of these encouragements. Yes, it's repetitious. Repetition aids learning. I want to single out three of these promises. And I want to, as it were, take the hammer and just drive it in if the Lord is so pleased to use it that way. So the Spirit says to the churches, you have little strength, your tribulations are going to be hard, but Jesus has the key of David. He opens and none can shut and shuts and none can open. And you are weak, but Christ is not. Christ's victory is your victory. And now hear once more briefly these encouragements from your risen, exalted Lord. Here they are. 
there's an open door in heaven. This, we said, means that even though Satan himself opposes us, heaven is open to us. Jesus is your true Eliakim who holds the key and no one can shut you out of the heavenly city. All of that is true, all of that is future, but what I want you to see is that it's true now also. The door to heaven for the believer is open. No one can shut it. You may go into the presence of the living God and fellowship with Him now. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And remember these wonderful verses, beginning in verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 and following. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You now may go into the presence of the living God because Jesus holds the key and has opened the door for you. Do you do that? Do you make use of that privilege? How can we not make use of that privilege? How arrogant of my heart if I do not make use of the bloodstained path to the throne of grace day by day and moment by moment. I said three encouragements. The second one is this. People of God, What is more encouraging than to hear God loves you? God loves you. And in verse 9, we were told that the enemies of God's people will bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What will the universe see on that day? They will see God has loved you. He has loved you with an everlasting love, an electing love. He has loved you and proven it in the cross so that whatever comes in this world never doubt his love for you because he's proven it through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And he loves you all the way to the end. Gerhardus Voss put it best. He said, The best proof that he will never cease to love The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Hmm? Can you tell me a time when he began to love you? He has always loved you. And if people of God, believer in Jesus, you know that then the best argument when you feel that he does not or you feel that you're not going to make it is the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began to love us. He has always loved us. Thirdly, God's name is upon you. Again, verse 12. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new 
name. Yes, in the future, but also now. And it costs a great deal for the name of God to be upon his people. It cost the infinitely precious shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. In Numbers 6, we have this great benediction that is called the Aaronic benediction, Aaron's benediction. And we use it from time to time here. Before we read the benediction again, which is Numbers 6, 24 through 26, notice it's put this way in verse 27. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So you see, people of God, when the benediction is pronounced, not only is there an element of prayer, it is primarily a naming ceremony, and God is putting his name upon his people. It's a naming ceremony. So when he tells us back here in Revelation that he puts his name upon you, he is saying to us, The Lord bless you. Jesus says, because I took your curse. The Lord keep you because I was lost in your place. You will be kept forever. The Lord make his face shine upon you because I bore his frown in your place. The Lord be gracious to you because, says Jesus, I bore your hell. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you because the Lord forsook me on the cross. The Lord give you peace because I bore your wrath. That's what it means that God's name is on you. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Yes, but not only is my name upon his hands, but his name is upon me, the believer in Jesus. And so that precious blood can say the vilest sinner. Is that you? Do you see your need of the Savior? Here is the basis of a clean conscience. You need a new name through the blood of Jesus. Do you realize that his blood is sufficient to save the most wretched sinner that ever walked the globe? Do you know God? You can only know him through Christ. Do you know that if you do not know him that you are lost? You are lost as the devil himself. Except for this. The gospel is never held out to the devil, but it is to you calling you out of sin and self-righteousness to the one who alone can redeem. Forsake your sin and turn to Jesus. And as we, God's people, come to the table of the Lord, let us marvel at this grace as we now prepare our hearts as those redeemed by the precious blood upon whom the name of Jesus has been placed as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. God's people said, Amen. Amen.